I look at things much bigger now from this longevity thing. Is what I'm doing now going to negatively impact me in five years? Or is what this person is attempting now going to negatively impact them next month? And I've been much less afraid of saying that, you know, now before you, you kind of, you didn't want to lose a client and you worked around it a little bit and kind of hoped you could get them to this logical, reasonable conclusion. And maybe I should have been more, more upfront even 20 years ago. It was a lot harder conversation. You're listening to Muscle Medicine, where we debunk the myths in the health and wellness world to bring you the latest updates in exercise, rehab, and nutrition from industry leaders. Join your host, Dr. Emily Kybert, chiropractor and movement expert, as she brings you simple, actionable tips to reach your fullest potential. Hey there, Dr. Emily Kybert here with Muscle Medicine Podcast. Today we sit down with someone who is near and dear to my heart and has basically taught me everything I know about strength training. His name is Matt Semerick. He's a trainer in my clinic and we collaborate every single day, five days a week to get patients better through strength, movement, and breathing. He's been a trainer for 21 years and he's Strong First certified. And if anyone knows kettlebells at all, Strong First, started by Pavel, is the gold standard for kettlebell training. He is truly the trainer's trainer. And every morning, Matt wakes up at 5 a.m., even though he has two kids, one under one years old and researches and reads and stays up to date on what people are playing with in terms of programming, how they're working with their clients, what are people doing for different kinds of injuries. He is amazing. He is definitely way under the radar because he's not big on social media, but I hope you enjoy this episode. Matt's stick, and it's mine as well, in the clinic at Urban Wellness Clinic is how to train for longevity. Sometimes when we're in our 20s, we like to hit it hard and kill it, right? So one day it's berries, then soul cycle. Sometimes it's doing doubles or triples classes and then training on top of that. And we all know that the tissue and the joints only hold up for so long. So how do we feed and train the joints for longevity? So that's what Matt's episode is all about. It's a topic near and dear to my heart. Matt and I also have a workshop together called Essential Movement Method. Our next workshop is in December. So if you go to urbanwellnessclinic.com and go to workshops for trainers, you can check out Essential Movement Method. It's a two-day workshop for trainers and practitioners on how to train your clients for longevity and have them basically never get injured under your care. Enjoy the episode. Can't wait to hear what you guys think. Welcome to Muscle Medicine Podcast. I'm so excited to have you on. You are one of my favorite people on this planet. And everything I know about strength training, I basically have learned from you. Oh, wow. (laughs) No pressure. Zero. (laughs) So we first met how many years ago? Let's see. Five? Five. Before Ruby was born. Yeah. Because I started full-time in the gym space still before she was born, like right before she was born. Yeah. And she'll be four in March. Okay. So I was training for Strong First certification. Did not even know how to deadlift. 
And Joe Gonzalez was like, go talk to Matt Semrick. He will help you press overhead, which was like double 16s, which is about 70 pounds overhead for someone that's about 145. Yeah. So can you give us like a little glimpse into what your evolution as a trainer has looked like? Because I don't think there's a lot of trainers around still that have been training clients for 20, 21 years. 21 in August. It was 21. Nice. I first started, I came to New York as a performer and I'd always been active and I worked out in high school. I played football and it was kind of necessary to be somewhat strong to survive. And I can move to the city and was in and out of the city doing shows. And anytime I went out of town, I would work out and people started asking if they could come with me. So I either looked like I knew what I was doing or like, I, but you know, you're in your twenties, you could just bump into weight and, and have a good result. So <laughs> I thought maybe I could make some money on a side gig. And before I knew it, I went through a certification program. It was a hands-on school that I don't even think is still in existence. And just fell in love with that. And I started researching health and wellness a whole lot more than I was auditioning. And before I knew it, it became this full-time gig. And then in 2005, I really, I gave up everything else and really dived in. And how has your training changed over the years? Well, when I first started lifting weights in high school and before high school, like on my back porch, my mom got me a curl bar and I had like a neighbor gave me some cement filled plastic plates <laughs> from Sears that every time I dropped them, they got lighter because, you know, I cracked the concrete out of them and dust would settle. So by the time I finished, I have no idea how much they actually weighed. But in high school, it was all heavy lifting. Like We squatted and we cleaned and bench pressed. And my best friend and I, our senior year, had weightlifting as first period class with the football team. So it was the, and I was not playing football that year because I transferred schools. So it was me and my friend David and then all of these huge guys. And we tried to keep up. So I got stronger just as a, I didn't want to look bad in front of these guys, but all super heavy lifting and, and really the, what you think of is as powerlifting style and then some Olympic lifting thrown in, but none of it really coached. It was just semi-demonstrated and here, try this. But for pure vanity. Well, kind of, yeah. <laughs> it was also, you know, don't get smashed and destroyed by somebody bigger than you. But at the same time, like there was lots of bicep curls. But then I, I went away from that. And when I came out of college and started getting certified, the industry had changed a bit and there was a lot of isolation stuff. So there were machines that hadn't been like the lat pull down in my high school Fieldhouse gym was on a universal machine, and you sat on the floor cross-legged, and somebody held you down while you pulled enough weight to move it. And, and nobody thought maybe just do pull-ups instead. Uh, it was do pull-ups in addition. So we were still doing you know heavy body weight held down lat pull-downs. Then moving on into my first years in training, it was that you did eight exercises: four for the upper, four for the lower. And don't forget the inner and outer thigh machine. <laughs> <laughs> the yes and no machine. Yeah, that was and that was part of it. And you tried to get get people to sit upright on that, and like, oh no, the taller you sit, the the more functional it is. And that was just a word that was kind of thrown in. And so for a little while, there was that little detour into machine based training. And I still had people do squats and and lunges and presses because it all still made sense to me. But there, no one was really heavy squatting or heavy deadlifting and. 
there's probably a period of maybe three or four years that I didn't even suggest deadlifting to anyone, which now I can't even believe I ever was there. But was there boju balls involved during that period? Those showed up, but always the platform side, never the dome. The dome was dangerous, but the platform side could encourage instability and you know stand there and do some bicep curls there. And that's really going to, your biceps are going to be incredible. <laughs> So what does it look like now when you train your clients? Now we, we start, there's, it's movement pattern based. So we look at what I consider seven essential patterns. We push, we pull, we squat, we hinge, we lunge, we carry things and we do uh, anti-rotation core based stuff as the, as the primaries. So I'm, I'm looking at kind of spreading all those patterns throughout the workouts and trying to find a, a relative balance of these things. And if we're looking for where they're most, you know, they have the most room to work in terms of building up a pattern, you know, if we, if the hinge is suspect, we, we focus on the hinge and I tend to focus more on the bigger patterns and supplemented with cross body patterns, like reaching and single arm, unilateral work, single limb stuff. And what are you building the workouts around? Is it like, I'm assuming people's goals. It starts out with a little bit of what they say they want, a lot of what they need, <laughs> yeah. and then a lot of what we discover they need as we as we go along. Because sometimes I'll have someone come in and say, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to get too big, bulky. Yeah, I'm not interested in being a bodybuilder. It's like I don't think you have to worry about that. <laughs> but we we look at what what they need as a, kind of an exploration. Because sometimes we don't we don't know, and and there's always a little bit of a mystery. And I ask. I always ask for their training history. Like what, tell me about your fitness life. What has your fitness life been, your exercise life? And uh, I, I build it a lot of times based on what they're already familiar with. We kind of start with some of that. I see if there are things we need to take away or, or change or adjust or nuance. And then we try to laser in on a goal. But a lot of that is really about their availability for training. Like if they have a jam-packed life and they have a goal of 2% body fat and, and they have like 15 minutes to work out once a week, we might want to readjust that goal. Right. What do you find, right? Because obviously being in the middle of New York City, we have a lot of people who sit. What are you finding the most common things that are coming up in people's bodies physically that you see? Their bodies have done a kind of good job of approximating movement. So I can say squat and I get the version of squatting that looks like they've been sitting a long time. Mm -hmm. So there there's tend, tends to be a lot of back extension or a lot of rounded upper back or, or jutted forward chins or shrugged, perma-shrugged shoulders. The things that kind of approximate, they, they look like you have been chair-shaped, that you have been sitting for a pretty good amount of time and maybe not extending your arms much past a mouse. Like little T-Rex arms. A lot like that, yeah. <laughs> And so where do you start with those people? Because I think it's important because I think a lot of people are living that life. I've bounced back and forth between different movement assessments. And with you came up with this essential movement assessment. So we look at the big patterns through a, a kind of lens of movement. So I have that as a baseline and seeing the, the things that are falling apart there and what we need to address first and then clean that stuff up as we work around. And I read a great quote recently from uh, Mike Boyle about seeing things in adults, mobility and stability doesn't necessarily change very quickly. And we're always kind of working around something. And we, we're trying to find a training effect while we try to get them moving better. And if we can get that to meet a little bit more in the middle. So we're not always focused on just corrective stuff. And I'm feeling like I'm not making any progress towards a goal. 
but I'm also not going to grind you out by having you do something that you're not movement competent in that you can't, if you don't deadlift well, I'm not going to have you deadlift tons and tons of weight until I can build that hinge pattern or, or find a version of it that works well for you. Do you think movement correctives are important before training? <laughs> it's kind of a long answer because a lot of my job over the course of many years has been reining people in because they're still going to try. So they're still going to go after things that they saw someone else do or someone suggested that they do. Like they're just going to kill it. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to rip and shred myself to fitness. So part of that job is is finding what they can already do relatively well or, or very well and maximizing that, still keeping a goal in mind and still trying to help them get, because a lot of people come in in pain. And if we're, if pain is really more of a health issue and it's not just a fitness thing, you can't really train yourself to less pain through more pain. Right. So like, do you have any go-to movement correctives that you give people? Yes. Breathing is a big one. Mm -hmm. Like I start, I start pretty much every human being with breathing. It's the one thing you really, truly can't live without more than for a few minutes. <laughs> like you could go without water for a couple of three days and still be all right. And I wouldn't, but breathing is really big. And I think all of us could learn to breathe better or have more efficiency in breathing, particularly when it comes to moving heavy stuff. Cause it's different. Like, you know, just sitting around breathing, surviving, versus surviving while under tremendous load. We need to have better efficiency in creating bracing and being able to transfer force versus like have that force wreck us because we don't have a good support. So we see a lot of people who come in and don't know how to brace. They think if they kind of pull their belly up and in or flex a six pack under heavy load, that that is a brace or engaging their core. I remember let's see, probably 2005-ish, 2000, a little before that. So early 2000s, talking about put your belly button on your spine was a big cue for finding abdominal connection, core connection. So everybody was like really trying to suck in and at the same time do things. So they didn't have an ability to get any air or pressure down low because they were, they were sucking in so hard. And I kind of look at it as a canister or a box. The box was an image I used years ago where you have the sides and the top and the bottom and all of those things need to be present. And I like the canister idea better because it's, we're, we talk about 360 breathing. So it's much more from inside out around and you have the top and the bottom with the diaphragm and pelvic floor and then all those surrounding tissues. So if you're sucking in, you're kind of kicking in one side of that canister. And if you apply pressure to that, the canister has no integrity. So it, it distorts or collapses. And the same sort of thing happens with us. We can't maintain pressure against load, then we collapse or distort. And something something soft is going to get caught in the middle of that. And that doesn't usually go well. Like a muscle, a disc. A disc. Something. Some, something that <laughs> helps you function. So now you play with a lot of kettlebell stuff. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's a necessary technique. You know, we have some power lifters, we have some crossfitters, we have some people that only train with kettlebells. Do you find there's any benefit with like starting with the kettlebell as a tool to work out? 
I think the kettlebell is a very friendly tool to start working out because it's usable for so many things. You can squat with it, you can press with it, you can row with it, you can lunge, you can swing it and get your hinge going. You can use it for load in the Turkish getup. You could take it on an airplane. Y- yes. <laughs> um, I will admit I took some home for, for Christmas one year and they never made it out of the car, but I took them. <laughs> and then I, I found a gym while I was there, so I didn't wind up needing them. But <laughs> I remember going to a Borders bookstore in Columbus Circle years ago. And I would go once or twice a week and see what was in the exercise section. I was hungry for everything. And this was before the internet was around, but it was before everything was so available. So you actually did a lot more reading. And I tried to find the latest thing. And I was really into uh, core performance then. And I still love the basic principles of core performance there was this book called Enter the Kettlebell and there was a shirtless Russian guy on this book and I like would flip through and go, man, I don't think so. And, and I never bought it. Um, and someone else's opinion about kettlebells who has changed his opinion actually since that time sort of influenced mine. I was like, oh yeah, you know, you're right. It is really kind of hard to learn that. And, you know, I don't, I don't have time to break down skill. So not true. So I kept bypassing that. And then I went to a three-day summit, fitness summit. And on one morning, there was a kettlebell workshop. And there was a little bit of instruction, but it was a lot. We learned to snatch and do some other things that I had never heard of outside of the Olympic weightlifting world. So I didn't, I didn't know what it was. And then I thought, oh my God, how does anyone walk out of here with a spine intact? There was so much. Who was teaching it? Kind of a mutant in the kettlebell world or in any sort of fitness world. He's a pretty incredible performance, but a little bit iffy as a teacher. Ah, got it. And then <laughs> later on in the afternoon, I went to a second workshop that was was taught by uh, the current chief instructor of the Strong First, Brett Jones. And he Love did a, a great job of taking like 70 something people through a hinge pattern through a single leg hinge, taught like some cueing for like finding your hips and then talked about pressing. And um, we did some swings and some pressing. And I thought that I was amazed by this thing. But this morning I thought, oh my God, I'm writing these off forever. And by that afternoon, I wanted to know more. So I went to the uh, lecture portion afterwards to learn some of the principles behind this. And that started my road. So that was over eight years ago changing my thinking. So now not only did I, you know, buy the shirtless Russian book, I have pictures with them. He was the chief instructor. Pavel was the chief instructor for my first RKC certification in 2011. What? Yeah. He was the, that was the last cert he taught as chief instructor. And then after that strong first sort of rolled out a year or so after that, but, uh, it was a big learning turnaround. And I saw this tool that before I thought was kind of like just a little bit scary became this very versatile piece of equipment for me because you could combine strength and power and grace and movement control all with, and it's not just that you can do it with dumbbells and certain things, but the kettlebell is good for the swing. Like dumbbells are awkward for a swing, but you can use them, but they're awkward. The kettlebell kind of creates this perfect tool. So I I absolutely love it. It's not the only thing I use because I have people who don't like to touch them. Really? Yes. I don't believe it. No, I also am a big fan of deadlifting and uh, I still like dumbbell chest presses sometimes because... It just feels good. And I like bicep curls sometimes because they feel good. I've never seen you do a bicep curl. I do them. I, <laughs> and I'm on a current cable bicep curl kit because it pulls my shoulder blades onto my ribs. So I try and make it a functional shoulder go. connection exercise with an ab component and still guns. And I probably need to do more, but I can hold my kids. So I have fatigued biceps constantly at the end of the weekend. 
so I think you are in a unique situation because you work in an office where there's like rehab medical diagnosing happening. Mm -hmm. How has that changed how you train your clients? I look at things through a much more health oriented lens now. Like longevity is the, is the real game. And before, you're big on that. Yes. Cause I, I, I need to be, I have two children under the age of four and I started late and I, I there's no exit strategy here. I have to be around. <laughs> <laughs> so I look at things much bigger now from this longevity thing is what I'm doing now going to negatively impact me in five years. Or is what this person is attempting now going to negatively impact them next month? And I've been much less afraid of saying that, you know, now before you, you kind of, you didn't want to lose a client and you worked around it a little bit and kind of hoped you could get them to this logical, reasonable conclusion. And maybe I should have been more, more upfront even 20 years ago. It was a lot harder conversation because it was, um, I didn't have the skill set then either. I didn't, it's been this, uh, this has been 20 years of evolving my thought process on this. And coming back to some stuff that always made sense as I'm applying new pieces, like looking at breathing as much greater emphasis, looking at reaching for shoulder rehab versus like traditional like down and back and retract the shoulder blades. Right. So now I look at it more from this health standpoint. Like how am I going to best serve this person in both their pain management, their progression out of pain, their attack of some real goals and get them to a really robust place where they're, they're actually chasing fitness versus just kind of hoping to catch up with it a little bit, actually catch it. Which is like going back to this idea of reining someone in and like, you're really big on longevity of, of not like killing it, which I think most New Yorkers are like, work hard, play hard. It doesn't have to be, um, crazy, complex, cool stuff to be really hard and challenging and produce a result. And I remember hearing a story um, about a program called Easy Strength and this collegiate team, football team was put through this program and they all felt at the end of at the end of the program, though they had reached their goals from a strength standpoint and injury reduction and, and uh, some aesthetic goals that it wasn't hard enough. And I get that, I get the feeling that we want this hard workout. But if you own the basics first, like know that you can survive the basics before you chase the really hard thing, which I still want you to do. I want you to have a really good sweaty workout experience. I just don't want you to actually kill yourself while you're doing it. Like exercise to death. Right. And obviously everyone has different goals, but like as a client, if you're like, I have a dream for this client and their workout looks something like this. Like think of like the person who sits all day and is at the computer, but like still wants to work out. Because I think we assume we have to go to the gym. It has to be this like sweaty hour and a half or like an hour. And really it could be, I think, much simpler. It definitely could. As I think the things not to sacrifice are the the resets for breathing. Like you you have to be able to, to get that back under control. And it can be a much simpler thing. Than you, it's not about laying on your stomach for 20 minutes. It's about focusing on, to not sound too earthy, crunchy, new agey. Which you're totally not. <laughs> is to reconnect with yourself. Like if you take an inhale, where do you feel it? And you want to know if you are feeling it with appropriate bracing, where are you feeling it? We have to like reset that first. Don't leave out the warm-ups. Make sure you're doing something full body in the warm-up world so that you're moving through and preparing your body for the impending workout versus 
just, you know, a couple stretches. I got my hammies, a little quad stretch, which I make people do. What do you think about passive stretching? Honestly, it's, I look at it as a doorway sometimes. Like if it's going to get someone thinking about moving and moving better, I will encourage some of it. And and I, I prefer more active and more sort of focused control in a stretch versus just like hanging out in a position because I, I feel like we can compensate out of good positions in passive stretching. And I don't, I don't, I probably haven't given anyone a hamstring stretch and I don't know how long. Because you don't find it effective or because you think there's a better way? I think there's a better way. I think finding a better lineup of things. I think reconnecting our, our, our power center, getting our pelvic floor and diaphragm on top of each other. So we're putting the hips and ribs back in line, stacked on top of each other. So we're taking the hamstring out of a desperate attempt to help us do that. We're actually facilitating that position. So now we aren't tight in the hamstrings anymore because we aren't abusing them. And I, I don't think we're aware we're abusing them, but often in these passive stretch positions, we're cranked through the low back and the ribs are, are miles away from the pelvis. And we're really putting more stress on the hamstring. We're overstretching it through work and then we're trying to stretch it. Right. So let's go to this idea of overstretching because we see this a lot. And I think it's, I think most trainers don't know how to work with a certain client that is hypermobile or has loose connective tissue or someone who's double jointed. Right. No. And usually those people are in chronic pain. Right. And usually trainers are like, yeah, I don't know how to deal with you. <laughs> it's having a, a broad toolbox. So we've got, you know, traditional cueing and, and things that we're looking for in, in a deadlift. You want to think hips more horizontal than vertical. You want to think shins relatively vertical, ramp-like back. There are all these things we cue out there. But if you've got somebody who does not feel their hamstrings and you say, I need you to you know, push your hips back and feel in your hamstrings and they never ever, they haven't felt their hamstrings in forever, but they have low back pain. The idea of pushing their hips back further and, and exposing their back more is, is tricky. And you're trying to, to give them a cue that they can't find, they can't focus on. We want to reposition the hips and hamstrings and the back through different cueing. So we might sit, we might look at what you can feel. I want you to feel your feet on the floor. So we create this tripod foot where we have a solid foot connection. And when you extend the hips, I want you to focus on squeezing the glutes or bracing the abs or what, whatever that standing position is. Your arms should be in this position sliding inside your, your shins in a kettlebell deadlift. So we're giving them different cueing to find those positions. And then we fill that with breathing. We fill the the connection of the hips to ribs with this insulation of, of breath. So we've got a much more solid core and then we can start transferring force because we're not looking for that hamstring stretch that they're never going to find. So there was a time period that you mentioned where it was like, eh, I'm not so much into like cueing or alignment or... So your description of a deadlift setup was like gorgeous. And I wish every single person knew those cues. Like when they went to set up, they could do a little checklist in their head, but I feel like oftentimes people aren't given those cues. It may just be that there's an assumption. Like there does need to be a communication between the trainer and the and the client as they're saying, Do you feel this thing? I'm telling you to do this. Is that working for you? Because right. often I'll I'll find a client or patient won't tell me. It's like and and I've 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 given all the magic. Here's my magic to you. And the response has been, I, that really kind of hurts. Oh God. 
<laughs> you should have told me that the first rep. Right. You know, here we are five reps later. And I think it from the outside, it looks great. Mm. Like you got your hips back and your back wasn't overextended and your neck didn't jut forward. But the inhale maybe didn't get where I thought it was getting. And it looks like their back is moving, but maybe not. Maybe Maybe they're not really getting length in there. So it's having that relationship with the client, being able to talk to them and say, do these things work? You know, and some tactile cueing, like tapping them in places that, that they're supposed to be feeling expansion on an inhale or engagement through the feet, like helping them steer their, their shins a little bit if they're not really feeling any sort of response from the foot. So getting people back into their bodies. Yeah, because the number of times I've seen people disconnected from the floor, like not able to find the floor or feel the floor, use their feet, like really stiff, immobile feet and the floor is where we're borrowing all our stability. We're pushing through the ground to lift a thing up. Or even if we're doing a cable row, we're still using the ground. There's ground force reaction in all of these things. And we need to have a better connection to that. You know, So if you're not feeling, if you can't feel your feet and you can't feel the floor, then you're probably not working as efficiently as you could. Do you have your um, clients work out barefoot so they can physically feel the floor? 90% of the time, 99% of the time. I have some people who just don't, you know, they don't want to. So we, we work to the best of our ability around that. And like, there's some gyms where you can't, you can't take your shoes off. So when they're with me, we train for optimal setup in all of these lifts and trying to produce all this force. And I still see like all over various social proof setups, crazy big high heel tennis shoes, (laughs) running shoes and kettlebell swings. And like, that just strikes me to my soul. I know it's like dagger to the heart. So in Strong First, there's this breath. And I remember you teaching me it and thinking like TSA, like a tsa or like essential. And I think a lot of people don't know that breath. Can you you talk about it, why it's important? So this is sort of power breath. The idea in the swing or any of the ballistic actions or even even the grind actions, but in the ballistic actions, we want a solid match to the backswing of any of those movements, or the swing, the clean, the snatch, we want to get a solid deep backswing and have the most support for the low back as we're getting into that. So that inhale, this sharp nasal inhale as we're filling up low and wide. And then the exhale as you're coming out of the swing is to time the glutes and abs together because we have all this force in this vertical production of force into the floor horizontal projection of the kettlebell. So we want to time that moment to lock down abs and glutes and not overextend the back. So we want sock gives that coordination of those two yeah, pieces. It's, some, it's something to focus on. So it gives you like a, a distinct focus on the exhale versus like the sh- where we've got air just kind of leaking out all over the place or forgetting to breathe altogether. Right. So if you, if you have the focus on the backswing and the focus on the snap of the hips. Right. So sometimes I do kettlebell swings in front of a mirror and then I'm like, what if that kettlebell flies out of my hands? <laughs> Should I worry about that? Don't do it. <laughs> Just don't do it. Don't do it. Well, there's sort of, you want to think there's an arc in any of the ballistic movements. The swing is an arc. So as you snap from the, through the hips to the top of the swing, whatever the power of your hips in that snap and the force through the floor is projecting the bell and the arms tame the arc of that snap. So not really, by lifting the bell, not by lifting. It's the arms are ropes with hooks. They're just, to, they're really there to keep the bell from flying across the room. 
into the mirror or out the window. Out the window. That one I've thought about too. <laughs> I think that room's kind of not From set the up second floor yet. or the 14th floor. <laughs> so the hips control the, the power you're producing through and the arms just are along for the ride to keep them from like past the backswing. They don't, the lats don't do a ton unless you need to stop some momentum at the top. If you're consistently over snapping and you got to tap the brakes at the top, you can do that. How do you do that? You tighten down on the handle of the bell. Like, harder to do in a single arm swing that you would essentially, if you were holding the handle in front of you, break down on the sides, like you're trying to bend it in half and that taps the lats. And if you've timed that with the glutes and abs and the, the lat, because it all happens so quick, that'll keep you from overextending or trying to crank your rib cage up toward the ceiling and lift the bell up higher. I found, and this is a practice thing, and probably not good to do in front of a mirror, to like soften your grip on the handle at the top and see if the bell just hovers there for a second before back into the arc. And that that's kind of a cool thing to play with when you start working on single arm work or hand-to-hand work, because the bell shouldn't shoot across the room ever, at least not more than once. It should float so that you can transition. So you, you get a, an idea of actually controlling the power of your hips, that you have some control over that volume instead of just all one note, like I'm all going to go full out the whole time. You might you know, snap to your ribs, snap to chest height, snap to neck height. So let's talk about this because sometimes you'll see people swinging over their head, right? Which is an American style mm-hmm. kettlebell swing. Strong first is more of a Russian style. Like why do one versus the other? There may be this sort of idea that the higher the bell goes, the more work you're doing. I would argue that the quicker the bell gets back between your legs and the backswing, the more work you can do. So you might be you know, snapping up, hovering at the top, and then the bell falls, and you have to control all of that momentum now. Instead of a more controlled arc, like we use in the hard style, the SFG, the strong first world or RKC world. And there are other sort of considerations, like are you able to actually snap your hips hard enough to take the bell all the way up there without having to use your arms? Unlikely. Do you have the shoulder stability and mobility requisite to get the arms in that position without having to extend your back and lose the stack of the ribs over the hips? So I think it kind of opens up injury potential or sort of pitfalls in in really what you think you're doing versus what you're actually doing. I would say you get more work done in the hard style swing where you're creating tension repeatedly more quickly. Yeah. If you were going to have someone find a trainer and they were like, well, what should I look for? Are there a couple qualities of like a great trainer? Right. Because sometimes people ask us right. or they'll be like, help me find a chiropractor in like San Jose. And I'm like, okay, let me, you know, reach out to my network. But if there was, you know, if you were telling someone from across the country, Hey, you need to work with a trainer. You need to build your muscle mass. It's your metabolic engine this is what you should look for if you're going to look for a great trainer. That's a hard sell. (laughs) You mean the first half of that or just finding a great trainer? Both. Um, (laughs) I think they're really great trainers. There are tons and tons and tons and tons of really great trainers in the world. I think it's looking a bit more at what they do, what they focus on. I mean, because you have folks who focus on fat loss and that's their thing. You have folks on older populations and that's their thing. And then there's middle of the road work on strength and power and longevity. That's my more my area. I'd look at credentials. I think if they have pursued a hands-on program versus just something you can do online, that's a great thing to, to look at. Are so they, what's some examples of hands-on programs? Any of the kettlebell certifications like Strong First and RKC and those you have to attend 
you have to train for and attend and not just survive them. You are then tested as an instructor. So there's a lot going on there. I like functional movement systems stuff because you, you have to go and, and spend some time diving into the assessment process and corrective things. Whether you wind up using it all the time or not, I think it's a great or a resource and, and it requires a devotion to some time. Any of the TRX things like the suspension training courses, I think are great because you do have to go. You have to go and, and be involved in these things. And it means that you've you've taken some time to invest in yourself and not just, you know. I like original strength has some great stuff because you're, you're again, you're looking at a devotion to a certain methodology and the practice of that and a really great breakdown of what they do and why they do it. And I'm NSCA, National Strength and Conditioning Association certified personal trainer. And I didn't have to go to a school for that. I chose to go through a training program. It was a summer long thing that prepped me for actually the ACE exam years ago. And then I transitioned to national strength because it spoke those, their fundamentals spoke more with what I thought about strength and conditioning. But those things you can study and take a test. So it doesn't necessarily mean this. I like the certified functional strength coach course because you, again, you have to study for it and then you go to a hands-on workshop where you're doing practical things and getting correction and, and then have to demonstrate and instruct. I think anything that asks you to instruct and demonstrate that you have not only learned a concept, but can apply it and not hurt a human being in the process. <laughs> Do you think everyone should pick up something heavy? Because we see a lot of people who are into bar or dance cardio or only want to do yoga. And part of what we do in the clinic is like, you have to be able to own your movement. And to do that, you have to be able to pick up something heavy because your purse is heavy, your kid is heavy, your groceries, your... I think heavy is is truthful. I think heavy it gives you feedback in real world stuff. Like even with cable stuff, I love cable things because they allow you to, to work different angles around the body, but they're not true load. Like you don't know how they're, they're resistance but they're not, you don't know, okay, that's 44 pounds or that's 52.9 pounds. You don't know that based on how you're moving in and the angle of the pulley and all sorts of different, you know, the, the vectors that we look at. And the same sort of thing with suspension training, like TRX stuff. I love it, love it, love it, but it's not, you know, always true load because the angle of you or the bend of the knees or whatever you're doing, I still think it's a dynamic tool for shoulder stability, but heavy really does tell you the truth. So if you, you know, you can pick up hundred and something pounds and you know you can brace against that and do it. I feel like anyone who wants to run or propel their bodies, their body weight and have to absorb that body weight should get pretty good at picking up some stuff. So we build some tissue density and adaptations in the connective things where we see so much go wrong, like meniscus stuff, because we don't have stability in the hip or we have a funky tight ankle and really suspect foot. Like let's work on producing force and making those muscles more responsive because we've, we've trained them with things that give us feedback versus a lot of high rep things that we might grind out. We might have actually exceeded our capacity to do that high rep thing, but it's so kind of seemingly low impact. We don't, we're not aware that we're continually cranking a disc until we get pain the next day. So what about certain populations that don't want to feel tight. So like some of our runners, we really have to get them. Like we feel when they do strength training, they're more resilient in their sport, but sometimes they're hesitant because they're like, well, I don't want to get tight for my 18 mile long right. run tomorrow. I mean, tight would mean that you were doing it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> 
This is a whole other conversation. <laughs> because if, if we're looking at joint angles, like being able to, to get down, you know, to squat down and pick up your keys that you dropped, if you can squat to a depth with load and you're building that as your new reflexive position, that means you're going to own that, you know, more of that movement and more actually long accessible tissue than getting tight. <laughs> There's a much longer answer, I think, but it, it really is. It's more about how you're doing it than what you're doing. Mm. And if you don't have any familiarity with it and, and you're going through, you know, if you just sat on a leg extension and, and tried to work that, you might be holding your back in an extended position and ribs and hips are separated. So you're actually tightening up because you're building a, a new posture that is placing stress in those tissues. And then what about certain populations we see only want to do body weight stuff like play with handstands or ring body work stuff? Like, do you still think those people should pick up something heavy? I think, yes. I think being familiar with things like if you lift the end of a couch, you know, you got to value like your daughter drops something for the umpteenth time under there and you know you don't have the shoulder you go get it kid (laughs) right so i've picked up a couch countless like one hand one side sort of deadlifted the end of a couch who knows how many times to retrieve something i mean i have said get it quick quick but (laughs) i think those things have carryover and and maybe it would be hard to say that like just practicing body weight stuff wouldn't get you resilient because it would but it it may not have the same long-term benefit as continuously stimulating muscle saying, I want to retain you. Because we know as, as we age, we start to lose muscle. And I forget the percentages over the course of years. I think you, you mentioned I think it's like three to 5% year over year, starting at like 30. So that's terrifying. At 47, <laughs> that's terrifying to me to think that if I, like if I just, and so if I'm losing muscle and I'm moving a lighter thing, am I progressing? Am I actually getting stronger? Or do I need to stimulate with external load in many cases, so that I'm saying to my my system, I need this, I need you, I need you, I need you. So I'm going to hold on to that stuff. I think anybody can still make gains. It just takes more focus. Yeah. Is there anything we didn't talk about you want to talk about? No, I just want to encourage people to not be afraid of picking up heavy stuff. It can be done in a very civilized way. Um, <laughs> it can also be totally savage. Uh, I think there needs and to be a mix. And you promote the savage? <laughs> uh, civilized savage. There has to be a mixture of, you know, approach this heavy thing and do some really ferocious stuff with it, but with an eye towards protecting yourself. Like you can do it well. And most of the time in, in fitness enthusiasm, we want to make sure that the thing we're training for is actually benefiting us and not don't just grind out because you, you really think I got to chase this workout. And if you're already maxed out, not recovering, not sleeping, eating iffy. Recovery is the place where adaptation happens. So if you're not recovering and you're grinding out in your workout all the time, you're always behind. You're always behind. And then eventually you have to take time from the rest of your life to either go to the doctor or heal or whatever. Instead of just make a little bit more room for recovery now, make a little bit more room for more sensible lifting, You know, grind it out four to eight weeks a year, 12 weeks maximum, spread out over the year, not like every day mm-hmm. uh, for months at a time. What do you do with people who feel pain? Because I know a lot of trainers will be like, you have knee pain, we won't train lower body. <laughs> <laughs> um, Full stop. <laughs> I think that actually might be where knees shouldn't go past your toes came from. Like mm, yeah. It's a, like a, it was a broad fix. Like, oh, and the knees going past their toes. It hurts in this aerobics class. Let's not do that. Those pink two pound weights. <laughs> I look at the uh, <laughs> where they're having pain 
when they're having pain, what's provoking that. If it's a, a range of motion that they're being treated for, you know, if there's a, a shoulder issue, I'm not going to you know drive them into that, but I'm going to find the ranges they can work in that will enhance the greater stability of their shoulder to allow for more mobility. We just need to look at you know the things they have been pursuing, and maybe it's a mechanical overload issue. Maybe. They've just been doing something with suspect technique for so long that that's what's producing the pain and you fix the pattern and all of a sudden the pain goes away or it doesn't show up until they hit capacity like eight reps in versus at rep one. So maybe we're just start to build more capacity in a pain-free, like new pain-free pattern or with just better technique or, or better support for sure, better bracing and through breathing. Which is what you're amazing at. <laughs> really you. seriously thank you so much for being my muscle pleasure. medicine my pleasure all right guys that episode all about training for longevity with matt samrick i'd love to hear what you thought so go ahead to itunes subscribe rate and review it means so much to get the word out on muscle medicine podcast on how to train and feed the largest organ in the body the one that is responsible for our metabolism and our longevity, the muscle. So go to iTunes. It means so much to me. I can't wait to hear what you guys have to say. <laughs>